You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to MidtownColumbia.com. Amen. It's a blessing to be together to worship uh, this morning. If you if you are new with us today, and I haven't had the chance to meet you, I go by Aunt. I get to serve as pastor. Uh, here of our Two Notch Church. Very glad that you're here uh, worshiping with us. We're actually starting a new sermon series today called In Columbia As It Is in Heaven. Yeah. Amen. In Columbia As It Is in Heaven. Do me a favor if you can go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is where uh, we'll do a lot of our work together today. Again, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In one of Jesus' most famous teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, Uh, He models this prayer for his disciples. Uh, We term it today as the Lord's Prayer. In that prayer, he has a specific part where he tells us to pray that God's kingdom will come, that his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So those two parts of that prayer that he, he leads us in, the part of his kingdom come and his will being done, are actually tied together. That as his kingdom comes, as his reign and his rule expands, that his will would also be done. He calls us to pray for this. He calls us to desire this. When his kingdom comes, it looks like people loving him more and more than they did before. It looks like people surrendering their lives to him, trusting him, trusting his goodness, reverencing him, as we talked about last week, and ultimately worshiping Him, We should, as believers, desire to see his kingdom come to earth, that his will will be done, that the earth will look more and more like heaven every day. That should be our prayer for our communities where God has us, our our schools, our homes, our neighborhoods, that we would see God transform and renew our city and our communities and our world. There are two terms that I love to emphasize. That I, If you're taking notes, I'd love for you to write these terms down uh, because we'll be dealing with them throughout our entire series. And they're the words transformation and renewal. Transformation and renewal. God's kingdom coming, God's will being done looks like him transforming and renewing the earth. So you can break the Bible up basically into three primary parts, really all of human history into three primary parts. That God made everything good, Sin messed everything up, and through Christ, God is making everything good and right again. Right? God made everything right. Sin messed everything up, but through Christ, God is making everything good and right again. And, and that process, he uses, the Bible uses terms like transformation and renewal. It basically means he's like recreating his creation. Everything got, got, got distorted. Everything got corrupted, and now he is making it new Again, this is a theme in the Bible because this is something that God is very, very passionate about. We know this because as Jesus is talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he tells Nicodemus that he must first be born again. That if you're going to have eternal life, you need to be reborn. You need to be born anew. Your whole life needs to be renewed and transformed in me, we see this also in Ephesians chapter 2. I'll look at verses 4 and 5 before we get into, into 2 Corinthians. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, 
even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. So he's saying that we were dead spiritually in our sins, in our trespasses. We were spiritually dead, but in Christ we have now been made alive. We have now been renewed. We have now been transformed. This is something that Christ is passionate about. I would go on to say, if you we won't turn there, but at the end of the book of Revelation, after Jesus is talking about what he is doing in, the, in heaven and bringing his people to him, he says, behold, I am making all things new. And we also see this in Paul's writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, where he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. He says, if anyone is in me, I have made you new. You are different than you were before. The new has come. The old has passed away. You have been renewed. You have been transformed if we have trusted in him. One of the things that I've noticed about myself and I would say about believers and followers of Jesus in general is it's very easy for us to desire and pray for and really truly long for Christ to make everything transformed and new around us, but we're less quick to ask him to do whatever it takes for him to transform and renew us internally. That it's very easy to desire to see less sin, less brokenness, less harm being done in the world around us. But if we want him to truly bring his kingdom, his will to be done, his kingdom come on the earth, we must first ask him to do that within us. That our own hearts would be renewed. That our own hearts would be transformed. That he would uproot the sin that lives inside of us and transform us. And that's actually very consistent with what we see as we continue on in in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'll read verse 17 again. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. I hope you caught the sequence of what just happened there in that passage. First thing he says is that we are transformed. We're made new. Right, the old has gone and the new has come. And then he says now he is wanting to use us, us as transformed people, to extend that same message of reconciliation that we have received to the world. That he is making his appeal through us. That we are the means, we as transformed people are the means by which he is reconciling those who are lost back to himself. It's very important that we don't seek that, that, that we would, he would make the earth look like the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, that we wouldn't seek him to do that without seeking first for us to actually live and look like citizens of that same city and of that same kingdom. That we first must look to be transformed ourselves. And what Paul is saying here is that he uses us as transformed, renewed people to bring his kingdom to earth. I'll read verse 20 as well. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, that we are transformed to be his ambassadors, that we are now made new, that we might correctly represent him as he makes his appeal to the world to be reconciled to him through us, which means we can more faithfully be used by him 
to call people back to him, the more we are transformed to look like him. An ambassador is someone who goes to a foreign land to represent the ideals and the culture and the way of life of their homeland. Ambassadors are are aliens. Ambassadors are, are those that live in a foreign place to them, and their primary goal is to make sure that those in this new place understand what life is like in their true home. And so for us, the more we are transformed, the more we are renewed day by day, the more we're able to be ambassadors because then and only then will we actually represent the kingdom that we are from. This is very important because this ties in your personal holiness, your personal walk with God and following him with the, the kingdom of God actually coming with power to the earth. Does that make sense? That you actually following Jesus, repenting from sin, practicing spiritual disciplines is not just about you doing what God told you to do, but he's actually planning on using it that his kingdom might come and his will be done on the earth. That Columbia only grows to look more and more like heaven when the church grows to look more and more like citizens of heaven. That this is how he works. That our obedience is not simply about us being a good Christian, doing the things that we are told to do, but our obedience is actually a reflection of him and a representation of his kingdom. So your personal walk with God is not just personal. Because he uses us as his ambassadors. This is very important that we understand that we embrace pursuing holiness and growth and maturity in the Lord, that he might use it to make Columbia look more and more like heaven. So, for the next seven weeks or so, us at Midtown Two Notch and also our, our downtown church and our Lexington church and our family church, we're taking, we're taking eight weeks to focus on how do we grow as believers that we might look more and more like citizens of heaven, that he might work through us to bring his kingdom come on earth and that his will might be done in the earth. We believe that as we grow and as we are transformed, that God will work through us to transform our city, our communities, our neighborhoods, our homes, our schools, our jobs, that our Christian practices aren't an end of themselves, but they are a means to an end of God making his appeal to the world through us to be reconciled to God. So one of the things that we'll do, if you're, if you're new here, this is actually a great series for you to jump in on for a few different reasons. One of those reasons is that we will be going through, in, se- in seven of those eight weeks, we'll be going through different points in what we call our membership covenant. So for everyone who becomes a member, there's a list of things that we say we agree to as members of our church. And there's actually seven practices. We call them covenant practices that are in there that we all agree to to say, hey, these things is what actually unites us as a church. And as a church, we commit to living these out. So you actually get to hear what the seven covenant practices are that we have in our membership covenant. If you're new, it'll help you know a lot about our church, what we believe in, what we believe God actually uses to transform us that we might see Columbia look more and more like heaven every day. Today we'll be focusing on the covenant practice that we have of Christian fellowship. Christian fellowship. I would define Christian fellowship as us following Jesus together. Following Jesus together is how I would define Christian fellowship. That's different from friendship, right? With friendship, oftentimes the aim is that you and I will grow in fellowship with each other. We will grow in knowing each other. The aim of Christian fellowship is that we would know God more, not not just know each other more. 
right? The aim of Christian fellowship is more union and unity in our walk with God. And the relationships that we have with each other are obviously beneficial and a byproduct of that. The Greek word for fellowship that's used in the New Testament is the word koinonia. It's a very, very rich word. It means to participate and share with. It's used to refer to one sharing their life with someone else, their life, maybe their, their resources. Even we see it used to refer to people sharing their, their material goods with others. In 1 Corinthians 1, it says we're called, to, we're called into the fellowship of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 10, the word that the, the word koinonia is actually used to describe communion. It says that we are actually fellowshipping with God in our communion. It's talking about a participation with, a joining with, a a unity with someone or some people. Christ is always the aim of Christian fellowship. It's all about knowing him more. This makes me think of Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. We see this group of men, they get called together to follow Christ as Jesus is calling his Disciples. I'll start at verse 1 in Matthew chapter 10. It reads, and he called to him his 12 disciples. I'll start right, stop right there real quick. He called them to him. He called his 12 disciples primarily to him, that they would know him, that they would follow him. This is what brought them together. It was nothing else. Again, verse 1, and he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every Affliction. So if you were with us a couple weeks ago, I preached a sermon about how we need to proclaim and portray the kingdom of God. This is him giving them the, the power and authority to portray his kingdom in these ways. Verse 2, these are the group of people that he calls to himself. Verse 2, the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, in this list of all the disciples, all the followers of Jesus that he's calling to himself right here, there are two specifically that Matthew singles out and he describes their way of life. Two of them specifically. One is the tax collector, Matthew. And the other is Simon the Zealot. He gives a little bit of family information about the others. He says that Judas is eventually going to betray Jesus. But these are the two that he singles out and actually describes a little bit about their life, their way of life. I believe he does this extremely intentionally. Context for this passage, the Roman Empire is currently oppressing the the Hebrews, the people of God, the Jews. And the Jews were so downtrodden, they, they, they so were, were just pushed down and oppressed by the Romans that they, not only did they dislike the Romans, but there was actually this political party within the Jews, within the Hebrews that were called zealots. Zealots were this militant group of people that so hated Rome that if you were also a Hebrew and you were a Jew and you wanted to make peace with Rome, they despised you as well. Right, so militant, angry, despising of the Roman Empire, that's Simon the Zealot. But you also have Matthew, the tax collector. Tax collectors were Jews that the Romans had hired out to enforce the the extreme and oppressive taxes on the people of God to, to further build the Roman Empire. A tax collector was a traitor. 
They were siding with the empire to further oppress their own people. And many tax collectors would even skim some off the top for themselves when they're collecting these taxes, and the Roman government would allow them to do so so long as they got the money that Rome needed to continue to run their huge, huge empire. So you have in this following of Jesus a zealot, someone who is militant against the Roman Empire, someone who despises anybody that even wants to make peace with the Roman Empire, and you have a tax collector, someone that has turned on their own people, the Jews, to work with the Roman Empire to further oppress their own people. Matthew makes a point to point out, hey, there's a zealot in this group, and there's a tax collector in this group of people that Jesus has called to himself. They would have been extreme polar opposites, politically speaking. I mean, this, this is more extreme than having someone who is, a, who is an extreme Colin Kaepernick supporter and an extreme Donald Trump supporter in the same group. This is more extreme than that. Like, these two probably could have come to blows if, it, if not for, well, that might happen politically here as well, but if not for Christ actually calling them to him. But here's the thing. They were called to Christ. First, and as a result of that, they were brought together in fellowship. The thing that brought them together was stronger than the thing that could have divided them. And the thing that could have divided them was extremely strong, very divisive. But they were called to him. Christ called them to himself. And in order for them to be with him and be around him, they had to be around each other. They had to follow Christ together. In fellowship and their disagreements, their strong opinions that they had that disagreed with one another didn't keep them from following Jesus as they were called to do so. One of the things that's important for us to know about fellowship, I talked a little earlier about how it's not just friendship, but it's actually something that God uses intentionally to grow us. That he wants to use us following him, not alone, not in isolation, but following him together to grow us. If you were with us last week, I talked about how we need to be open to being corrected by each other, right? So he uses us to encourage each other, to correct each other. He uses that to grow us, but that's not the only thing he uses to grow us. Because he also uses the fact that just like probably Simon and Matthew were, sometimes he's going to call you to be family with somebody that you wouldn't even like outside of Jesus that you wouldn't spend any time with outside of Christ. People that might make you think, I, I don't know, do I really fit in with this group? Is this group really for me? Because I'm looking around here and I don't see people that look like me, that act like me, that think like me, that vote like me, that do whatever like me. But as we see with, with Simon, as we see with Matthew, following Christ together made it worth it made it okay for them to be able to fellowship with those that they disagreed with. And you got to think about this. These were, were young men at the time, probably under 16 years old, right? And in that culture, at, at 13, you became a man. So when they are described as young men, they're, they're likely less than 16 years old. And you got a, a, a zealot, teenage zealot, militant, right? Hates anybody that even wants to make peace with Rome. And you got a tax collector that's here as well. I don't want us to over-romanticize how this might have gone. I think what Matthew's trying to point out was that this was going to be difficult for them. 
This wouldn't be an easy thing, but they continued to follow Jesus because they were ultimately called to follow him. This probably isn't the life group they would have picked. Can I say it that way? This probably isn't the group they would have chosen. If they would have been able to pick who they were following Jesus with, they're not picking each other, right? They're not choosing to follow Jesus with someone that is completely on the opposite end of the political spectrum as them. But, but when you're a follower of Jesus, you choose him, he chooses your family. You get the honor and privilege of choosing him, of walking with him. He dictates who your family is. You don't choose the brothers and sisters, right? You get adopted into the family. The brothers and sisters are there, and now they are yours. I can't imagine that they would have chosen to walk together with this group of people. But I believe that Christ, with them and with us, wants us to be around those that we disagree with, wants us to be around those that we don't see eye to eye with, wants us to be around those that you have very strong opinions about, about them, about what they're saying, and they have very strong opinions about you and what you're saying, and sometimes that causes friction. I believe he desires that because he wants us to grow. Because remember, fellowship is a means of growth. It's a means of getting to Jesus. It's a means of knowing him more. I tell you, there's few things that are bringing you to your knees in prayer, like having to continue to fellowship with somebody that you just struggle to get along with, that you just struggle to get along with. There are few things that cause you to have to rely on Jesus more than that one person in your life group. We all know who that person is. We ain't got to say their name. We all know who that person is in your life group that you struggle with. It's difficult. It's difficult. When you're trying to fellowship and walk in love with someone that voted in a way that you can't grasp in your mind how a respectable person would vote that way. But you're doing life with them. And God is using them most likely to overcome the stereotypes that you have and the prejudices that you have about people that think differently from you. Because fellowship is about following him together. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, there's this long list of Paul describing what love is, right? You hear it a lot at weddings all the time. The first thing on that list is love is patient. It's the first thing. Paul's about to give this long list of love is this, love is this, love is this. And he starts with love is patient. That same word can be translated long-suffering. It means to endure. It means to, to, to bear up under something that is difficult. It means to be mild and slow in avenging. It means to be long-suffering, slow to anger, slow to punish. Listen, you can't be challenged to grow in patience and long-suffering if you're not caused to be around people that cause you to suffer to some degree. Right? I'll say it over here. <laughs> you can't be challenged to grow in being slow to anger with other believers if you're not around other believers that make you angry. He calls us to be patient. He grows us in biblical fellowship. He desires for you to be around people that you don't desire to be around so that he can use that to transform you. Because remember, fellowship is about following Christ together. It's about following 
him. We won't be mature and transformed and renewed as followers of Jesus as we are called to, as he desires to renew us if we don't commit to Christian fellowship, following him with others. This is a primary tool of his to shape us, to renew us internally. God is too committed to bring in his kingdom come and his will being done here in Columbia to just allow you to be comfortable. He's too committed to his mission for that. He's too committed to renewing and transforming Columbia. He's too committed to renewing and transforming you to allow you to just be around the people that make you comfortable. There's a mission at stake here. This is not just about what we want or what we believe is best for our lives. This is so much bigger than us. I hope we're not foolish enough to believe that we can represent a God whose love is so patient with us that he forgives us every time we do wrong and continues to pursue us. I hope we're not foolish enough to believe that we can faithfully represent him as his ambassadors when we don't practice long-suffering and forgiveness with those that we are in fellowship with. You can't be an ambassador for him if you don't practice patience. We can't faithfully represent him if we don't grow in patience and long-suffering as his people, as his body. One thing, there's one thing I want to point out specifically that I believe gets in the way. It's a word you may not be super familiar with. I know it's not something that I've talked about, but it's something I'm seeing more and more that can get in the way of us practicing biblical fellowship. Something that makes it more difficult for us to practice patience and long-suffering. And I say makes it more difficult because uh, here's something we all need to know. Everybody practices patience towards something. You have something in your life that you're willing to suffer for, that you're willing to sacrifice for. There's something in your life that you're willing to take some L's for, that you're willing to take some losses for. Everybody knows how to practice patience. There's some things I think that get in the way from us practicing patience when it comes to biblical fellowship. And that thing that I want to focus on today is what I call idealism. Idealism. Idealism is being practiced when we have an unrealistic expectation for things to occur in an ideal way. When you have an unrealistic expectation for things to occur in an ideal way. If that's you, you you walk in, you live in idealism. I want my church... I want my life group to be this size, look this way, filled with this kind of people, filled with this demographic that does this, that lasts as long as I want it to last, and no no shorter, no longer, that only requires of me what I want it to require of me. If I could find that, then I'd be good. If I just had that, this, this group that you created in your mind, your imagination came up with This idea of what biblical fellowship should be, and when that does not coincide well with biblical fellowship, you're discontent. You're a complainer, you're resentful, you're angry, you're sowing seeds of discord through all of your complaining because your preferences weren't met. It reveals to us that we aren't actually able to discern the difference between preferences and needs. That's a sign of idealism. When when you can't be content, when your preferences aren't met, it's because you expect things to go the way that you created in your mind that they should go. And then when that doesn't happen, now I complain, I'm not content, I feel like things need to change because this isn't what I thought it would be. 
for those who have a proper understanding of biblical fellowship, we understand that even when our preferences aren't being met, we're still winning because remember, biblical fellowship is following Jesus together. It's not having my preferences met with people that I enjoy being around. Biblical fellowship is not primarily about me being around a group of people that I click well with. It's primarily about me having a group of people that I can follow Jesus together with, that God is using in my life to help me grow and know him again. Remember, because the mission is at stake. Those who, who, who walk and live in idealism think more about their preferences being at stake than the mission being at stake. Think more about what I want to happen being at stake than they think about what, what, what would happen from, from the standpoint of God bringing his kingdom to earth and his will being done in Colombia as it is in heaven. I believe we have confused our preferences with our needs. If your idealism is causing discontentment, you need to kill it. You need to kill the fake group or the fake church that's in your mind that you made up. That if, it just, if the preaching was like this and the singing was like this and the child ministry was like this, you need to kill it. It's destroying your contentment. You can't even appreciate and rejoice in all the blessing that you have because all you can focus on is how it's not what you expected it to be or how it's not what you prefer it to be. So here's what ends up happening. You end up loving your idea of biblical fellowship more than you actually love biblical fellowship. You are more married to your ideal and your idea of biblical fellowship than you're actually married to what Christ calls us to. Let me take it a step further. You become actually more in love with your idea of biblical fellowship. The people you made up in your mind that don't get on your nerves, that don't show up late, that don't talk too much. Right? You're more in love with that than you're actually in love with the person that's sitting across from you in the room. Because you think more about your frustration about how it's not what you wanted to be than you think about how you can love the person that's sitting across the room from you. You are more in love with an idea than a person. You're more in love with your preferences than you are with people. This is what idealism does to us. If idealism is killing your, your contentment, causing you to be discontent, causing you to be overly frustrated, causing you to be bitter and resentful, you need to kill your idealism. You need to realize that loving biblical fellowship is loving real people, real broken people that don't meet your preferences, that don't do what you want them to do. That's what loving biblical fellowship actually is. We come in with these expectations. We come in with these desires. And when they are not met, oh, I got to go to the other church because the other church, they have this thing and this thing and this thing. And then you go there and you're there for a few years. And then you go back and say, no, I'm going to go to this other church because it's got this, this, and this. And we never understand that our discontentment is rooted in idealism, which is preventing us from growing the way God wants us to grow because it's preventing us from walking in true fellowship. And we never even stop to consider that the mission of God is at stake here. That we do this because God has called us to be his ambassadors. And he is calling us all to biblical fellowship. That we will walk in unity and oneness with our brothers and sisters together as we follow him. As we walk in love towards the brothers and sisters that he has put around us. I want to go through something real quick that I want to call the, the four stages of biblical fellowship. The four stages of biblical fellowship. Here's, here's, here's what I mean when I say that. When you get this call to biblical fellowship from the Bible and some desire to live in that, 
But then this idealism is also there. The combination of these things leads us to this sometimes cyclical cycle, the cyclical stages or phases of fellowship. The first one is the honeymoon phase. Y'all know what that is, right? You just came around mid-time. It's like, man, they really love people. Man, they really love God, yo. Like you hashtagging us, like hashtag my church better than yours. That honeymoon phase where it's like, this is what I've been looking for. This is what I've been longing for. Yes, I finally have connections and relationships with people that love Jesus that I can build relationships with. And the church is diverse. So it's like, man, we really look like heaven. This is so dope. Honeymoon phase. Second phase. Apathy phase. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, it's all right. The, the excitement isn't there. The appreciation isn't there as it was, even though your experience or, or what you're dealing with and the people are exactly the same, the, the, the gratitude to the Lord for it is no longer there. You don't care as much. I mean, it's cool, but, you know, you ain't hashtagging us no more, nothing like that. But, you know, it's cool. It's kind of become kind of normal, become kind of routine. The things that you used to be excited about and rejoice in the Lord and to be very grateful for, now nah, it's just Tuesday night, man, and I'm tired. I am tired. I don't really want to be around people. Apathy. The third phase is what I like to call the rough patch. And this is the one we got to know how to navigate the best. The rough patch. Things have gotten difficult. Maybe just started with people in your life group just being aggravating. Just real aggravating. Gosh, he's going to continue talking. He's talking more than anybody else. Ain't nobody going to stop him. Ain't nobody going to say no. I guess it's going to be me then again. I guess it's going to be me. Oh, this person coming with this same story again after we done told them over and over and over again what they need to do in this situation, and they don't listen, and now they're coming back crying to us? People's sinful habits and tendencies start showing, including yours. Conflict, arguments, there's confrontation. Confrontation is when it goes good. Sometimes it's even worse. It's that passive-aggressive stuff, right? Those side comments, those ones you say under your breath like it's a joke. You know you meant that. Why are you acting like that's a joke? You meant that. The rough patch. I'm just tired of being around this person. I just don't like their personality, okay? It ain't that I don't love them. I just don't like their personality. Easy to find reasons to not show up and participate in life group stuff. Or maybe you show up, but you just don't, you just checked out. You there, but you ain't there. You more on your phone than you there, but you there because if you don't show up, then somebody's going to text you and they're going to be like, why didn't you show up? And you don't want to deal with that. You would rather be at home and be on your phone, but instead you come there and be on your phone instead because then ain't nobody going to text you because they ain't supposed to have their phone either. <laughs> so you just be on your phone there. Rough patch. Maybe you just don't do well. That was fun. Maybe you just don't do well with getting close to people because of relationships in the past. So the connection that you desired previously is now scary and difficult. The relationships and, 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 the, and the oneness and the unity, the closeness that you have had previously with people now is scary, it's difficult. Maybe people haven't reached out to you as much as they should have, as much as you expected them to. Maybe people haven't put forth the effort to reach out to you as much as you put forth the effort to reach out to them. Or at least the, the, the effort you reached out, you used to put forth to reach out to them when you were engaged, right? When you, were, when you were really on it, the amount of effort that you put forth to reach out to other people, they haven't put that much effort forth to reach out 
to you. We go through a rough patch. This is when many leave churches. There's much hindrance in the, in the forward movement of the kingdom of God because of this. But I want to give us a little bit of a vision for something a little bit greater, and that's acceptance and re-engagement. Acceptance and re-engagement. When you're able to put aside your idealism and say, we're not a perfect group. We're not perfect. It's people that frustrate me like crazy. But God is at work here. But God is transforming us. God is renewing us. It's worth the difficulties. It's worth the patience that I have to put forward because this is helping me to know God more and see him. And we're just following him together. Right. We hurt each other sometimes. We confront each other sometimes. It's not always pretty. But when I look back over the however many months, I'm more mature now than I was because of the things that I pray for God to take away. I am more mature now. I know him more, and I see him working in and amidst our group. I saw that time this person was in need, and somebody reached out to them and helped them out, and it was beautiful. I've seen people be encouraged and challenged in the Lord to follow him more, and they were upset at first, but now I see them growing in that exact same way that they were challenged, in the exact same way that we prayed for them, and I'm encouraged by that. I see people who never understood the gospel before coming in, and now they understand the gospel, and now they want to follow Jesus. And I'm encouraged by that. Acceptance that is not what I expected it to be. That my dream, my imagination, my idealism is not met. And still being able to re-engage and saying, we're not perfect, but I'm in. I'm willing to reinvest in this. Knowing Jesus and his kingdom coming to earth is worth the difficulties. It's worth everything that I have to suffer through and endure. It's worth the sacrifices to be, to be present and participate in our church functions, in our life group functions. So how do we become the type of people that keep coming back to this place of acceptance and reengagement when we've become distant? If you're like me, I feel like I've cycled through all of these at some point. I feel like I continue to cycle through them from time to time. How do we grow in biblical fellowship? I tell you, um, so my wife and I just moved uh, this past week. Actually, we moved in, finally, finally got everything in yesterday. And thank you. And it's been blowing my mind. I got weird neighbors, y'all. Like, I didn't, know, I didn't know neighbors did this type of thing. So we pulled up. And this is, I mean, we, we, we were trying to do some work on the floors and upstairs. And so we're, we're working there. And a woman from across the street just comes right over. She saw that we had some kids. And she was like, hey, you guys, you, you have kids. I love being around small kids. My, my grandkids, they don't come around anymore like they used to. And so I just had some stuff. I thought I'd just give them to your kids. First time this lady has seen my kids. I just thought I'd give them your kids. So now my kids got toys, this little thing, throw the ball, and I think they catch it with the, with the thing on their hand. I got a racket as well that they can hit it with. The day before that, we're there working. My neighbor, so facing the street, my, my neighbor to my right, just walks up to me with food in his hand. He's just got, I've never heard of ham steaks before. You ever heard of ham steaks before? They're like this big. They're in the plastic. I've never heard of them before. Apparently, he shops somewhere where you can have ham steaks, which is cool with me. He just offers it to him, and he's like, hey, I'm just giving this to you. He said, hey, understand, this isn't a trait. You don't have to give me anything back. Matter of fact, don't give me anything. I just want you and your family to enjoy this. I'm like, we got the weirdest neighbors up in here, man. And then my neighbor to my left 
Over here, nice older lady that, that, that just sits there and waves every time we come through with a big smile on her face. Her daughter, who doesn't live with her, came over, knocked on our door and was like, hey, very glad that you're here. Just want to welcome you to the neighborhood. We'd love to be able to bring you guys a meal at some point next week. Is baked ziti okay? I don't know if I've had baked ziti before. It sounds wonderful. I would love, I would love to have it. As I'm reflecting on all this stuff that's been going on by neighbors, people, I don't even know all this kindness that we've been shown. I felt myself being inspired to do the same thing the next time someone else comes into the neighborhood because I want them to experience the same thing that I've experienced. I found myself being like, yo, do I get to be in on this? Like, did y'all have a conversation? Like, how did y'all sync up so you're alternating days? Like, how did you guys do this? I don't know how this works. But if somebody comes in, I'm in on that. I want someone else to be able to experience the same thing that I've experienced. Family, the only way that I know how to encourage us as a church to be able to walk in the type of patience and love that we are called to is that we remember the patience and love that we have first received from our Lord. One of the most beneficial things for me sometimes is just to sit down, close my eyes in a room by myself and just reflect on Christ's death on my behalf. It's one of the most beneficial things that I do. Sometimes I do, I do music, sometimes I do worship music, but I just sit and reflect on, he could have gotten down off the cross at any point in time and he chose not to. What type of love is required for that? That he continues to be patient with me? All of us, we have people in our lives that if they would have known all the wrong things that we would have done in the beginning, they probably never would have never been friends with us in the beginning. They probably would have never known. If they saw every thought, if they heard every thought and saw every action in your life, it would cause them some type of pause or hesitation to know us and befriend us. But Christ, who knows the depths of our hearts, he knows everything about us. And he says, I love you. And every day of your life, every moment of your life, I'm pursuing relationship with you. That there is never a moment in your life, if you're a follower of Jesus, from the time you were born until now, that Christ has not been pursuing you. That moment does not exist. The only way I know to encourage us to walk in the type of patience and love that we need is that we might remember the love and patience that we have been shown, that we will be inspired by that, that we will be overwhelmed by that, that we will be motivated by that to show his love to others. I want to take us to Ephesians chapter 3 as I close. Ephesians chapter 3, starting at verse 16. This is Paul praying for the church at Ephesus. He says, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So he's praying that they will have the strength and power inside of them. Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. He's saying, I'm praying that you will have the strength to know the love of Christ that's unknowable. He said, I'm praying that you would be able to know the width, the height, the depth of his love so much that you will be rooted and grounded in it. And that's my prayer for us. That if, if God is going to use biblical fellowship to transform us and renew us the way he desires to do so, we're going to have to first grow in love and patience, which starts with looking at our Savior that we will remember his sacrifice for us, made a way that we could know God apart from our own works when there was nothing we could do for ourselves to know him, that he died, that he was resurrected with all power in his hands and his enemies under his feet, 
that he ascended into heaven and is coming back for his people to take us to be with him in paradise forever. Let us always remember what he has done for us. Let us always be rooted and grounded in his love that the fruit of our lives will be love and patience with one another. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your love, for your patience. We thank you for your word, for how your word challenges us, for how we know that we are called to be your ambassadors because you reveal that to us. Father, it's such a a, a weighty call. It's such a, a big thing that you call us to. We thank you for your spirit that is in us. And Father, my request is that you will empower us through your spirit, just like Paul prayed, that we would know your love, the love that surpasses knowledge, that you would help us to know this love, this patient, enduring love that that, that considers it to be worth it to continue to deal with us and befriend us and be near us and fellowship with us. Father, make us a church that embraces biblical fellowship, that we would so cherish and value being able to follow you, that we would count it a privilege to follow you with others, with all the brothers and sisters you put around us, no matter how different we are, no matter how much we disagree, no matter how difficult it is, Father, we ask that you would transform us in this way, that you would renew us as we practice fellowship, the fellowship that you create as we follow you. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.